This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by the Charco Book Club. Their carefully curated selections reflects the best in contemporary photography and all for a reasonable price. And they're delivered directly to your doorstep each month. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., subsidized elsewhere. And it's a great way to begin or expand your photographic library. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com and remember to use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. We also enjoy the support of photographer Chris Suspect, who is hosting his annual Day of the Dead photography workshop in Oaxaca, Mexico from October 28th through November 4th. Gain a wealth of photographic knowledge while in the midst of one of Mexico's most colorful and exciting cultural events. Learn more and reserve your spot by visiting chrissuspect.com forward slash day of the dead. That's chrissuspect.com forward slash day of the dead. When I began this show in 2006, I came up with a short list of people I wanted to interview. While the list has gotten longer after 15 or 16 years I've been doing the show, I'm really grateful that I've managed to meet and speak to many photographers on that list. Some have been years in the making, and when it finally happened, I wasn't disappointed. That's how I feel about interviewing the legendary photographer Gregory Heisler. His sensibility and skills have resulted in iconic photographs of people like Muhammad Ali, Bruce Springsteen, and Al Pacino, just just to name a few. He is often admired for the distinctive look of his images, but his approach is really about how he sees and how he engages other human beings and making the photographs not only exceptional, but a wonderful collaboration. Heisler has now joined the Multimedia Photography and Design Program at the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University, where he's a distinguished professor of photography, sharing his wisdom with a new generation of image makers. Our conversation went on longer than our average episode. We didn't want you to miss any of this wonderful conversation, so enjoy. This is Ibarrio Next, and welcome back to the candid frame. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad to finally have you as a, as a guest. I'm honored to be had. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the first time I got turned on to your work. I was at the, the college newspaper at Los Angeles City College. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. And the head of the photo department brought that issue of Sports Illustrated where you did the Ali pictures. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I looked at that and I was like, I didn't even know stuff like that was possible. That was two of us. That was just luck, man. <laughs> luck? <laughs> well, luck that you, you got the assignment or that you pulled it Boy, off? Boy, anything. All of it and anything. You know, you have to be delusional that any of this stuff's going to ever work out anyway. You have to just kind of <laughs> kind of hope for the best. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I don't mean yeah. take it light. I appreciate that. I do. So have you gone back to the classroom yet? Are you still virtual? No, no. We've been in the classroom since fall. We're, we're two semesters in, yeah, which is great. Oh, good. Came back in September, yeah. So w- 
what's it like now as compared to before? Because you were teaching before the pandemic. Oh, yeah. And then you had that two-year period where, you know, everyone was in the doors. And so now how has that sort of changed the way that you approach teaching? And what did you learn as a result of being virtual for almost two years? Really surprisingly, the virtual thing worked out pretty well, I think. You know, the challenge is the equipment's not like they need an electron microscope or, you know, an atom smasher or something. You know, it's like, it's pretty okay. What was surprising, I found, was that some students, actually a few, more than a few, were almost more engaged through Zoom than they would be in the classroom. I was a little bit worried people be separate. And I think a reason for that is they feel safe. They're like in their home bedroom, wherever they are. So students who might be a little more reticent Mm. to speak out in class in front of their classmates, they were cool. They were good. And so people were actually very engaged. So that was actually great. I was surprised. It was, And we had students literally like zooming in from Hong Kong and other places. So it's people were Beijing, people were far flung and there were obviously uh, time challenges, but it, wow. it worked out. Okay. It was good. Instead of thinking this sucks, this really sucks. I have to say, I just sort of like, okay, there's an opportunity. We'll never have, you know, we've sort of been thrown into this. What could be cooler? What could be like a cool thing to do this way that we wouldn't do otherwise? Instead of having just a diminished version of a class, like how can we make this better? And so, right. On mine, the things was even kind of the bar was raised because of this. But like, I'm not one of those guys that bans phones in the classroom or any of that. I feel like I have to be better than a telephone. I have to be more interesting than a telephone. I have to be funnier than a telephone. I have to be smarter than a telephone. I have to be more informative than a telephone. Otherwise, they should be on their phone. I would be. You know what I mean? Like, I'm in the <laughs> entertainment business. I feel like, seriously, I feel mm-hmm. like you, if I'm not doing it, get on your phone. I'll get the hint. Really, I feel like that's my job. So, yeah. There's a piece of that. And so in my house here, I actually, there's like a spare bedroom upstairs. I literally made it into like a little, like a little teaching studio in a way it was getting out with lights and stuff, but made the whole space like a little set. Not with, like I said, not with lights, but I had like pictures on the wall from like 1894 and just weird, interesting stuff. The place was packed with it. So basically, as soon as you got on, you're like, well, that's kind of cool. And all the other teachers, no offense to all the other teachers. Yeah. They, it doesn't look great. You know, first of all, half of them, they, they do it like this, you know, like you see their nostril and that's it. Like, are, are you a teacher or what? Like, are you a PhD? Mm-hmm. Are you that stupid? Really? You know, so there's that. And like first day of class, I'm looking at it and it looked like bad version of Hollywood squared. Like I'm looking at the thing and a piece of what we do is portraiture. And I just said, I'm looking at 20 really shitty portraits. I want you all to figure this out by next week. You take some time. I don't care if you use your desk lamp. I don't care if you use the cigarette lighter. I don't care if you move stuff around. Like, I don't want to have to look at this all year. I'm insulted. It's terrible. You know, really. You know, it's like, see, do That's you see great. this? There's a portrait back here. You see this? Like, we figured it out. It's, yeah, I don't want to look at it. Half of you, I said, half of you look like you're in the witness protection program. You got a window behind you. I can't even see your face. <laughs> you know, I'm serious. <laughs> it was terrible. And literally the next week, it was 20 portraits, some better than others. But clearly everybody heard it. They heard it for sure. And so that started off stuff like, uh, for them, like, oh, okay, this will be fun. This will be kind of cool. Okay. Like, we haven't even started the class yet, yeah. and we started the class. So I teach everything from, like, a, the intro intro class for undergraduates and non-majors. We're like, they don't know which end of the camera to look into. They've only ever used a telephone for taking pictures. You give them a DSLR, and they hold it out at arm's length on live view looking at the back of the camera. You know, it's just... <laughs> That's what they're used to. It's just what it is, what they're used to. So you're really starting from scratch, which is fun, I think, because they, 
They don't know anything about it. No bad habits. They're just starting from scratch. In other classes, you have grad students, and some of them, that's all they've ever used, grad students, because Mm. they got their undergrad in English literature or psych or social, whatever it is, and they graduated. And I thought, you know what? I like taking pictures. I want to check this out. So if it was me, I'd go to the local community college and take like a class of photography before I started forking over Syracuse University tuition, but to learn like which end of the camera to look into. But regardless, it's, it's not like some of them are wildly sophisticated and the others are newbies. And honestly, I mean, you talk to a ton of people. There's a lot of professionals that really don't understand the stuff all that. They do really well. They take great pictures. Don't really understand it all that well. Like I love, I do love everything about photography. I like all of it. And I want people to be intentional. I want them to think about what they're doing before they do it in, in every, on every level. It doesn't have to gum up the process, but I wouldn't want them just using it because they're using it because they read somewhere that it was cool or a friend of them told them to do it or whatever. I just would like them to be kind of thinking it about it a little bit. That applies to everything. That would apply to how they use their camera. That would apply to if they use a 50 or an 85. That would apply to if they shoot at 2.8 or 8. That would apply to ISO. But it would also apply to like, like people don't know much about the history of photography. Mm-hmm. That's kind of sad. It, it is a little sad, I think, you know. So that's a piece of what I do. I just, they don't have a history of photography class here. And a piece of it's that, like if you go to RIT or something, which is great, it's four years of photo. I mean, you're, you're taking pictures from your first semester. This is a photography program embedded into a liberal arts program, right? So okay. you only get so many classes allotted to it. And I feel like history is really important. They don't know anything about it. I mean, almost nobody, really. And, you know, like the history of art is long. History of photography is pretty short. You can know it. You can, and not all that long. So there's that. And it gives you perspective on stuff, and it's very inspiring. And like, honestly, for the grad students, the very first day, I just tell them, that I'm going to give you a number. You have to tattoo it backwards on your forehead so you see it every morning when you're brushing your teeth. It's 1839, 1839. I say, because you're going to be at Thanksgiving dinner, and some uncle's going to say, like, oh, you got a master's degree. When was photography invented anyway? You better know the answer, man. That's all I can do. If you get nothing else out of this class, 1839. <laughs> I'm serious. You know, awesome. it's like that kind of stuff. There's that. Like, you you have to know this stuff. Uh, really. You know, there's, and there's tons of stuff like that. But that's, it's a big piece. It's a big piece of it for context, I think. And it's super interesting to me. You know, I'd, I'd work with uh, art directors and not history. They wouldn't know who Andy Leibowitz is. They wouldn't know who Dan Winters is. And I would think Dan's like a new young buck. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they don't even know him. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, I saw some of his pictures when I was in seventh grade. Yeah, yeah. like that kind of thing. Oh, so God. there's no sense of actual history, history at all. Zero. Zero, zero, zero. And I think it's fun. And most of them, once they start getting into it, they really like it. I mean, it's, it's great. And a piece of that even is when I had money, I collected a bunch of pictures. It was like a year or two where I was making a lot of money. And so... I spent all of it on pictures, right? I'm not like an investor. I wouldn't know anything about the stock market, but it's like, well, I know pictures. I'll buy me some pictures. So I bought pictures. So I'll bring in like daguerreotypes that I have or platinum prints that I have or stuff like that. I can bring in a Stieglitz or a Karsh or this or that. And they go, mm. and it's one thing, like until I started looking at that stuff as actual originals, as objects, you know, the 19th century, man, that's a lot of brown pictures in a book. You know, everything's sort of sepia yeah. tone. And it's like, okay, they're all right. So that, a lot of stiff pictures of people just sitting there like this, sepia. And then you start actually holding the prints in your hands and the daguerreotypes and it comes alive. It's really great. So I bring that stuff in. 
I'll bring in my eight by ten camera and set it up. We do mess around, and they're like, literally, you set the that's a dude or one of the ones I bring in. You set that up, and honest to God, it's like showing apes fire for the first time. They go like, <laughs> I can't believe it, right? I work at the Huntington Library in in Southern California, mm-hmm. so and I'm one of the photographers there, and we're actively mm-hmm. digitizing a lot of things in the collection. And I recently had an opportunity to uh, digitize some daguerreotypes and tintypes from the 18th century, late 18th century of Chinese Americans or Chinese immigrants from that, from that period. And I discovered, I discovered there was a, a basically a photo studio that, that, that probably catered to the Chinese community at that time, right across from where city hall is. And, and that's now a park. Oh, no kidding, LA. Right. Yeah. But it that's was fascinating wow. to to see these, to handle these these images, and yep. how beautiful they were. Considering what they were working with, some of those photographs are just just stunning. And there, there's something about holding an image, a photograph, rather than looking at it on a screen or in a book, that is just really awe inspiring. At least for me, and I think that any opportunity, especially for photographers, are coming into it, they have to. You have to have that experience of of seeing a photograph, not not an image on a screen, and whether it's on your phone or on your computer, because that really, I think, cements the excitement, the thrill of making a photograph. I, I think you kind of incomplete yep. until you actually made that physical that into a physical medium that you can feel, that you can touch, you can feel the texture underneath your fingers. Yeah, until then, I think you're kind of missing out. So I, I completely get how your, yeah, your students it, respond to it. And it's it's the ultimate outcome for a photograph is a print. And the thing that's great about it is you don't need any software for it. You don't need a machine. You don't need a computer. You don't need anything. It's gonna If it's you know done well and archivally, it's like 100 years from now, somebody's going to be able to hold that thing in their hand. They won't even be able to open Photoshop or Preview or any of that stuff then. Right. Mm-hmm. And how much stuff do I have that's on like literally tapes or zip drives or stuff like that? I can't do anything with it. Right. That's, that's done. That's done. Yeah. I actually, I'll be honest with you. I did, uh, gosh, it was 10 or 15 years ago. I photographed digitized this whole collection that I had done over these few years where I was collecting stuff. It was a lot. It was like a thousand pictures. I went, I was like, I think it precipitated my divorce, my first divorce. <laughs> it was like, uh, it was just, I went a little crazy. I did. I did. You know, my wife was like, look, guys have affairs. I wouldn't like it. I get it. I wouldn't like it. What's with all the damn pictures? Like, you can't even look at them all. Like, what is going on? It's literally like that. Mm. But I was collecting them, and I there's a, uh, a program called um, Extensus Portfolio, and put everything into there. It's, there's fields for, like, value, size, medium, blah, 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 blah. So did all that, photographed everything put it in like a thousand pictures or more. And it's just been dormant because I haven't had the time. And I've been going through all these changes of teaching and moving and all that kind of stuff. And now that I'm here, a piece was like, all right, let's, you know, let's get back into that. I can't even open it. And I called the folks at Extensus and they said, oh yeah, no, that we can't do that, but we can sell you a new thing if you want to do it again. Oh, Are God. you guys nuts? This is an archiving software. Are you nuts? So I haven't <laughs> pursued that yet, but I'm I'm contacting an arsonist to see what I can do. Out there. It's just crazy. Like, really? Like, that is actually the, what that stuff is for. So anyway, the print's the print. 
And the other thing is that an artist, as an artist, the print is an absolute, like it's, it doesn't matter the monitor. It doesn't matter the calibration. Like, you know, you put out a print digitally, which is great, but like, is it an Android phone? Is it an iPhone? What kind of screen? Is it a laptop? Has it been calibrated? Any of that stuff. Like you actually have no idea what your stuff's going to look like when someone looks at it. Right. And also you have no control over scale. Like you do a picture that looks good on a big calibrated 30 inch monitor, but most people are going to be seeing it two and a half by three inches, whatever it is. Well, that's, that's a very different kind of scale, right? Like an image is going to read really differently. So as a print, you, I mean, you look at Andreas Gursky's stuff. These things were like, you know, 20 feet long at MoMA and 12 feet high. It was like these monument, monumental, huge digital prints he made when that was like a big first thing to do. You see them this big, they're not looking so good. Because, yeah. Not because they're not good pictures. They don't even hold up in a book because the whole point is that there's so much to study. There's so much to look at. They're so like dense with uh, information. So yeah, I think, I think seeing the real thing is, is a big, and for me, honestly, I was a dummy. I was, I don't remember when I first went, I'd have been like mid thirties and I went to this uh, show. It's an annual show in New York, not expo. It, it's uh, APAD, A-I-P-A-D. It's the American Institute of Photographic Art Dealers, something like that. They have a show every year and it used to be at the Hilton. Now it's at the, on the pier or something like that. But a friend of mine told me about it and I hadn't collected any pictures at all. I had like a few things here or there, you know, but not really. And I went to this thing. It was two floors in the Hilton over a weekend, went in the first floor. And it was like every photo dealer you've ever heard of. And it was like a trade show for galleries, for photographic galleries and dealers, publishers. And you could literally see everything you've ever seen in a book for sure. And you could pick up the prints and hold them in your hand and back in 1990, it's not like it's a million years ago, but it's a long time ago now. You didn't have to be Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos to, to buy one. Like photographs were mostly in the hundreds of dollars. There were some in the thousands. There wasn't much there that was over 10. So for artwork, that's pretty cheap. And I was looking at this stuff. I spent all day there. It was unbelievable. And I walked out with like a pounding migraine. It was like <laughs> just... Photo overload in a way, really. Like I was, my eyeballs were rotating independently when I walked out of there. And I went back the next day and went to the second floor, which is the smaller dealers. And they had like a little like a car table set up with some stuff or, you know, like almost like a swap meet kind of a thing, but smaller dealers. And again, like amazing to see everything. And you pick it up and you hold it and you can ask questions. It'd be as if you could go all around the country, walk to a gallery they give you the white cotton gloves and they'd say, go in the back and knock yourself out. And you could just go through boxes. Cause also at this thing, everybody's showing their best stuff. They sort of one-on-one -on -one up each other a little bit. So you're getting the greatest hits for sure. It's fantastic. It was that. And on the second floor, it tended to be like vernacular stuff, weird stuff. The last thing I saw was, I'm not kidding you, way in the back, was in the corner was the last guy. And he had these weird ass, like 19th century, mostly overpainted photographs right? They were the most ugly ass portraits I've ever seen in my whole life. I couldn't believe it. Really couldn't believe it. They were sort of charming and amazing in a way, but sort of grotesque in other ways. Because in some cases, it just looked like folk art, like the underlying photograph had faded. So all that was left was the overpainting in a way, the embellishments, that kind of stuff, right? It looked, I have a bunch of architecture. It's really cool. And I stood at his thing for like three hours, right? And he's from DC and he's, this guy, it literally is like a good old boy. He was a preacher 
in Georgia, I think, before he opened this gallery, moved to D.C., right? So I'm looking at this stuff, and there's nobody stopping by. He said, well, you're going to look, Greg, we're going to buy something. And I was like, well, I don't even know what to say. I'm, I'm like, you know, slack jaw looking at this stuff. Yeah, he said, I just, it was like 5 o'clock. And I said, like, I want the booth. I don't, I don't know what to say. I want the booth. Like, how would you even pick, you know? He's like, well, Greg, you don't rush yourself. No. He said, <laughs> I tell you what, I load them into the van. I drive them up to New York. We'll lay them all around your studio. You take your time with them. You got to live with them. Don't you worry about nothing. You live with them. And, you know, I, I'll be back in touch. That's what it, and he did. He came up like a month later with, I don't know, 50. And these things are all framed. That's the other thing that's kind of cool is that it's a complete thing, a complete expression. And he laid them all around. I was with him for a while. And I bought everything. <laughs> I just bought it. I said, you can't take anything home. He knew. I had like sucker printed on my forehead for sure. But <laughs> what was so cool was that in a sense, he curated all these flea market kind of pictures you'd see like in a, yeah, like an antique mall or something like that. They were really cool. And the other thing, as a portrait photographer, what portraiture has been all about for ages now is celebrity. Right, like it's the Andy Leibowitz picture of John and Yoko, or it's Avedon's picture of so and so, or it's the pen picture of this and that. It's like, which is great. That's what it is, right? Mm -hmm. These pictures, you don't know who shot them, you don't know who's in them. They're standing on their own. You're taking them at face value, right? Which I love, and also they were just made by some Joe in a town making a right. living. Nobody with like artistic aspirations or pretenses. You know what I mean? And some, I thought they were great. Some of them were like. You can't imagine somebody showing this thing like, well, Mrs. Johnson, here's your picture. And she goes, oh, my God, thank you so much. And the guy, get, the person looks like a, literally a pig with like two dots for nostrils, like horrible. <laughs> but for them, it was amazing. Do you know what I mean? So I love all these things. I think they're, I really think they're amazing. But again, had I never seen that, had I never gone to the thing, if I'd seen him in a book, no way. It just wouldn't have registered. And I think they resonate when Tim, or I, even like at that thing, I saw daguerreotypes. Like I'd seen daguerreotypes like in flea markets and stuff. You can't, you kind of move them around. You can't really see what's going on. These things look like they were made yesterday, right? They're like amazing. This is going to sound super corny, but the little photons bounced off of somebody's face and hit that plate. There's literally a physical connection with that person literally a physical connection and and it almost looks a little 3d i i have thought the very same thing right i i remember when i saw a print i think of the famous uh, photograph of oswald getting shot right and that's immediately what i thought about it's like the light that reflected off of oswald and all the people in that frame right impacted that negative that was in that camera yeah it, totally just like you said there's that connection and I and I remember thinking about that when I first saw that print. I thought about that negative, about that there was a physical interaction between the subject and that film that was magical to me. Just the thought of it. I mean, I I'm with you. I, and it sounds corny, but it's, it honestly was very moving. It was. It was. You know. And you have to appreciate. In the daguerreotype day, nobody had ever seen anything like that at all. Like it was. It's not like it was a beautiful painting of the person, which could be great. It's like, it's your ass in the picture. Like, you know, we all have, we've all seen a million portraits of like Abraham Lincoln. You look at a photograph and it is mm -hmm. like his 
ass in the picture. He's a real, I have a picture of him here. It's like, but like <laughs> that's him. Oh, that's, wow, yeah. that's actually him. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that is nuts to think that that's, that's possible. I'm about to, um, in a, in a couple of months, I'm going to be digitizing a, letters from George Washington after his presidency. Mm. These are original letters. Right. And I just like, I just, right. It's like, I, I'm going to be handling a piece of paper that George Washington wrote out, you know, and, they, and, and his, you know, his, his famous signature, yep. you know, and it's just something that's just very, that's awesome about being able to be connected to someone by a piece of paper, either that yeah. has a photograph on it uh, or it has ink from a, a pen yeah. on it. I think it's just, I, I can never get over that that experience of it. That experience makes things that seem like they're fiction, they turn them into reality, into real history, as opposed to f- fables and fiction. Do you know what I mean? I'd like the things that sort of just seem like stories. Oh, absolutely. And it just makes it real. And that to me is really moving. Anyway, t- tell me what you're going to say. Sorry. Yeah, um, about eight years ago, you did something with Ilford where you had a lot of your images printed up big. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You mentioned during the presentation that that was that was the first time that you'd actually seen, you know, your photographs big. When, when I mean, I'm sure you've done it since then, but when you took a look at your pictures printed that big, did you come to a, a, a revelation or have a greater appreciation for what you'd been doing when you saw those large, large prints? Damn, I'm a good photographer, man. Those are some good pictures. (laughs) (laughs) I should be making a lot more money than I am. This guy should be famous. This is some good pictures. (laughs) You see him in a magazine, eight and a half by 11. Yeah, that's cool. Like 24 by 30, 30 by 40. It's like, that's some good pictures. I'm not kidding. It was, no, seriously, it was cool because. Almost everything in that show was shot large format or very close, medium or large format, most large format. So when you make, when you make, and that's not saying it's better, but when you make, not digital, when you make 35 millimeter film images bigger, it's great. But the past a certain point, you're not seeing more. You're just seeing grain or the structure of the image. You're not actually seeing more. When you shoot something with a larger format camera, the bigger it gets, the picture kind of opens up for you. And you now have access to information, to stuff that, that sort of just wasn't available littler. Do you know what I mean? I'm making the prints. Like I've right. always made my own prints. I never had assistants make prints or, you know, except for proofs or something, but never. I always made all my own prints. And I enjoy it. You know, it's like, I think it's great. Like I don't, I don't want to be like a photo manager, like make it darker any way that any more than I would like lighting or anything else. It's like the fun part's doing the thing. Actually, one of the things I really like about digital printing for sure is now you have all these different kinds of papers available. And I'm not down with the ones that wish they were silver prints, but they aren't. Do you know what I mean? Like they secretly wish they could be a silver print, but they're not. It's like, it's cool. It's just not what I would like. I'd rather, you know, any more than I guess right. watercolor paper. So you wish your picture was a painting. It's like, that's not really it. The deal is that back in the day, like particularly for color, if you wanted color prints, there was this type R prints or C prints, and they never looked great. I just was never a big fan, let alone the archival thing. Like they just always look worse than the paper than the transparencies that they just did, you know. And you could get a dye transfer made, 
it was permanent. It didn't necessarily look a whole lot better. And sepachromes were a whole other issue with contrast and all kinds of stuff like that. They were cool in their own way. Uh, but just not here, all of a sudden, you can handle color with all the pre more precision than you could in a dark room. Like you really can tweak things and have, and have it be great. You can literally like just literally tweak colors and everything. And then now you can print them on really lovely paper so that before, whether it's a dye or a C print or a Cibachrome, the, the print is more like you're just looking through a window. The object isn't a particularly tasty object in a way. I feel like with these things, now the object's really luscious. It's like it's, it's cool to pick it up. It's cool to feel it. If you remember, the, I mean, one of the things that was cool about the Ilford show, actually, is that they did not frame anything. And they actually had these little tags on stuff like, feel me up. You know, the whole point was like they wanted you to touch them, which is like, I appreciate the idea, but maybe have like a sample of paper next to the print. Maybe that'd be better. But the whole idea is you could actually touch the print. And the fact is, it was uh, great. You know, there was no glass. Like the truth is, if I frame some of the stuff that I print, <laughs> generally I'm printing on matte surface, sometimes stuff that has a little tooth to it. Once you put it behind glass, it's, it's kind of gone at that point, but not entirely. And I think seeing the prints on naked like that really gave you the full experience of it. And I think people really appreciated that for sure. It was, it was pretty cool. It was great. And it was, it was, yeah, I mean, what it made me want to do is make a million prints is what it made me want to do for sure. My photography books mean a lot to me. Certain books on my shelf have outlasted several generations of cameras. The Nikons, Canons, Olympus, and Samsungs have all come and gone. But my favorite books have survived. Those books have taught and inspired me along my photographic journey. Books, especially the books that I have, never became obsolete. Though my collection contains many well-known photographers, there were a few photographers who I really didn't know much about, but when I discovered their work, I was left just inspired and excited. And I get that every month by being a member of the Charcoal Book Club. Because when you become a Charcoal Book Club member, you'll enjoy a great new title every month. And if you don't like that month's release, you can choose another similar value. They offer free shipping to the US, Canada, and the UK. It's subsidized elsewhere. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today. And remember to use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. One of the other things that can give you insight into our appreciation for what you've done is when you have to start teaching because you, you know, you're doing stuff and it just comes automatic to you. But when it comes time for you to have to explain it to somebody else, you gain greater insight because you have to understand totally what you're doing in order to communicate it to somebody else. Yep. So over the years that you've been, been teaching, what have you learned about yourself and your work that you don't think you would have learned otherwise? Oh my God. I mean, I've, I have learned a ton, ton. I mean, I love teaching. It's big fun. And I'm endlessly patient with it. I mean, I've taken the one thing, particularly once you get into start teaching lighting and stuff like that, because I don't teach lighting. 
I teach light. And the reason is Syracuse uh, Newhouse, in particular, school, Syracuse has two photo programs. One is in the College of Visual and Performing Arts. That's, in a sense, their fine art program. I'm at the Newhouse School, and that's more journalism and commercial in a way like that, right? And that, that whole thing is such a dated way of doing it. I mean, they should roll them in together. It's ridiculous. That's like back back in the day, that's what it was. But now, like, you could be a photographer who shoots conflict, and you could have those prints sold in a gallery. And if you want to do crazy shit like own a house, buy a car, you, like, might have to do commercial work. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's and all those things inform each other. But the teachers, they didn't get the memo yet. You know what I mean? They're like, I'm a fighter, I'm a this, I'm a that. And it's just... Right. It's bullshit. You know, I was Arnold Newman's assistant a million years ago, and he would call it so-called fine art photography. And he would say, Jesus Christ, and these guys on their card that says fine art photography. You wouldn't call yourself a fine art painter or a fine art sculptor. You're just a damn painter or sculptor. How come photographers are so insecure? Fine art, you know. And, and like, <laughs> he's got his point. He does have his point, you know. So I'm really patient because I'm slower. Again, I like to do it all myself, but I've been slower with everything digitally in terms of post-production, whether it's Photoshop or Lightroom or whatever. The actual imagery is fine, but the kind of doing the stuff, like just beyond Google, you know, Google Meet or something, like for me, that's tough. And so that stuff's hard. And for some reason, everybody who teaches that, they can't imagine that you don't understand it. It's so obvious to them. You know what I mean? And, and so I totally right. empathize with that. I took a workshop out West with this guy to specifically to learn uh, Lightroom. I did, did out in Santa Fe. And it was hard to close the studio for a week to do that, but I just like, I want to do it, right? So I go there, and everybody else in the class is like 12 years old, right? But I'm there, and the guy who's teaching, it's great. He's one of these guys that's like beta tester for Adobe, like super, super good guy for sure. And he's teaching it, and like by mid-morning, I'm in a panic because every time I write something down, I look up, he's somewhere else now. You know, it's, it's moving fast for me. And by noon, I'm almost in tears. Mm -hmm. I mean, and at the end of the day, lost. I'm a pretty smart guy. I was lost. And I went up to him at the end of the day and I said, hey, man, I'm an eight ounce glass. You can pour all day. That shit's going on the floor. Like I just, it, I, I can't do it. I can't absorb, you know, that kind of thing. And he said, well, you know, we got a lot to cover this week, Greg. And I said, pick half, motherfucker, pick half. Because like, it's just, <laughs> you know, like, what you're saying, it doesn't mean I'm getting it, you know. And so I, I spent a week and got nothing. Almost nothing. It, was, it made me so sad and frustrated, you know, because I know I can do it. And what it would make students do, that's why I've ever, it would, if I were a student, I would come away with, well, I guess that's just not for me. And that's sad because I think it is for me. Mm. And I feel that way with the light, like the best thing, we just finished the semester. I have some students who are so not down with that. My thing is like, you never know what someone's next picture is going to be. You just don't know. You know, I never write anybody off. You never know. And in the semester, there was two people who handed pictures like, where have you been all semester? Not like they weren't there, but just it was so not clicking. And it kind of fell into place. Yeah. You know, people were not down with the light or any of that stuff. And to me, that's why I said not lighting. Like Newhouse is this traditional, really good photo J sort of history for sure. And they have that school's not been down with all the post stuff. And I think it's because they think like, ooh, you know, Photoshop and journalism are, you know, antithetical kind of thing. And I feel like if you're a serious as a heart attack documentary photographer, you better understand light because you can't move the person. You can't change the lighting. All you can do is move your ass around. 
And so you have to be able to walk into a place and immediately think, okay, if they're there and the light's kind of coming from there, where do I want to be to make this work? And for people who are really great photographers, it's almost intuitive. They can size that up in a second. So you have to really understand light if you can't use any lights. Like that's for sure. And also for a lot of these students, I feel like they might not be interested in it now, but in five years, they might be thinking, God damn, I should have listened to Heisler. Now they're looking at YouTube videos, you know, trying to figure out how all this stuff. So I feel like you just never know yeah. what, it just become comfortable with it, you know? And also in a sense, all the entry level positions for all this stuff, they don't want you to be a consultant. It's like, you know, in architecture, you get an architecture degree. You're not going to sit down with Frank Gehry and sketch on a napkin with him at dinner. It's like, you're a CAD monkey. Like he wants you sitting there, you're the person doing all the stuff. So like when you leave here, the entry level positions are going to be to work on James Knockway's archive or Andy Leibowitz's prints or packing lights for Dan Winters. Like that's what you're going to be doing, which is cool. But like, if you can't do any of that, that's not so good because then you can't get your toe in the water yeah. in a way. So I, f I feel like I'm very patient with that stuff and I really enjoy teaching it and I take it as slow as I need to for sure. Because just cause I'm set that I'm going to cover from here to here and people aren't getting it. It doesn't matter. You know, I just, I'll sing not cause I'm a Canon guy, but I will tell you, Ken has the explorers of light thing. I used to call it the exploiters of light, but it's been a, a program they've had since like 1990. Nikon came out, the Nikon ambassadors like 10 years later, but that's something we've had. And that program, it's gotten bigger and smaller and bigger and smaller over the years. It started out with like, I don't know how many people, a dozen photographers or something. I was in that first group and then it swelled and then the economy sort of shrunk. So it got cut down and I thought for sure I was going to get cut, but I didn't. And then it swelled again with videographers once the 5D came in, right? And it was all of a sudden like Vincent Laferre, he did his thing and the thing just took off, right? So all of a sudden there's like a lot of videographers. I thought, okay, they're going to kick, kick me out now. Like they didn't, which is great, right? Then it contracted again. And a lot of really good photographers, they gave the ax to, which I thought was not so cool, but they did. But I was in there. And now it's swelling again with influencers, which is like, that's cool. That's marketing. That's what, what they're doing. And I was still there. I'm thinking, and plus now I'm teaching. I'm like so much out there visibly with a byline photographing all the time. My, my, my emphasis on teaching, we can talk about that in a minute. But I just thought any mm -hmm. day I'm going to get the call for sure. I'm just going to get the call. It's going to be, you know, and I did. I got a call. It was like several months ago. And the guy's like, well, Greg, you know, I've been meaning to talk to you. It's like, yeah, yeah, okay, just say it. And, you know, you want you to know how much we at Canon appreciate your service and all you've done. It's like, no, no, I think that's great. Just fucking tell me whatever. You know, it's like, get him out of it. And he says, no, we, and, you know, we are <laughs> making some changes with changing times. It's like, you know, I can't say it. You know, really. And he went on and on. And finally, for 20 minutes, He's like, so it won't really be appropriate for you to be with the explorers at this point. And I said, I absolutely understand. You know, I understood, blah, 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 blah. And I don't know if you've heard about this or not. I think it's been publicized. But we're starting a new program called Canon Legends. My ears pricked up. It's like, yeah? Yes. And uh, we want you to be one of those guys. Well, that works. That's, that's great. That's great. Yeah, that's fine. I think it's like me and six other, ten other photographers and four dead guys or something. I'm not sure, but it's some kind of thing like that. I was like, what? That's great. <laughs> and, but I, I call back like a month later and the truth is they don't give you anything, or at least not me. Maybe they give it to Lindsay Adler or something. I, don't, I have never gotten a free lens cap from Canon, never, in 30 years. And when they started the program, 
well, again, it's great. They're great. The guy who started it, he said, Greg, you know, I want to talk, what's compensation going to mean? I said, well, honestly, you don't have to give me anything. I just want like the latest, greatest. And when the new latest, greatest comes out, I'll give the old one back. And you give me the new one, you can give it to a school or whatever you want to do. But I want the latest, greatest all the time because A, I want to use it to make pictures. But B, people are going to ask me, what do you think of the blah, blah, blah lens? And I can't say like, I don't know, I've never touched it. Plus, I'll give you feedback. That'd be great. I mean, how's that? You don't pay me anything. And what he said was, well, Greg, I guess Santa's not coming to your studio this year now, is he? Axed off. I said, that's what they think anyway. Everybody thinks I get all my stuff. For, like, you think Michael Jordan pays for his shoes? I don't think so. Not that I'm Michael Jordan, but it's like, you don't, you're mm-hmm. not kidding me. Anyway, that's what it's been. So I teach this baby class at school. Not baby class. It's the intro. Intro, intro. And for non-majors. Two different classes. And for that class, mm-hmm. there's not really cameras dedicated to that class. And lots of those students don't have cameras at all. Like I said, they only used a phone, right? And if you're trying to teach it, it's a nightmare because like even the menus, you get to, oh, my menu says this and the button's here on mine. And how come it doesn't do that? And it's just, you spend all your time just dealing with that. And I call Ken and I said, look, I've never asked you for anything. This is not for me. This is for the school. I need 25 of whatever you have that's a DS. I don't care if it fell off the back of a truck. I don't care if being a center back, whatever. I just want 25. It can be the low end rebel, anything. I just need the same. They have to be the same. And like a month later, 25 brand new EOS RP mirrorless cameras with 24 to 105s on them showed up. They haven't asked for them back yet. I think they're on loan. And it was on me. It was on my little Canon Pro program thing. And I told the students, like, if you lose something, if you leave it in a bar, in an Uber, somebody robs you, I have to pay for it. I'm not kidding. Like, whatever it is, professor doesn't pay all that much. Like, you have to take care of this stuff. You do. Like, I'm, I'm not kidding you. Like, I'll hunt you down and I'll kill you. But other than that, you have to take care. And everybody returned the stuff perfect. And, they were, and again, when you take stuff out at school, you have to return it and then wait a day and there's all this stuff. They need to have a camera. They have to shoot with it every day. It's the only way you learn how to use it. And you can't shoot once a week, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that, that has worked out <laughs> really well. And similarly, there's no real calibrated the monitors are calibrated, but there's no calibrated like displays in a classroom at school. Truly calibrated. They're all different. And again, liberal arts school. Half the people who use the classrooms are shown pie charts, you know, or whatever, that kind of stuff. PowerPoints. That's been a struggle. And I gave a talk oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago in Utica of all places. And my stuff never looked that good right. projected. And I've given a million talks all over. It was like, oh my God, I look great. And I asked the tech, I said, what are you guys u- using? This is in Utica. You know, it's not like in, at the Met or something. And he takes me upstairs. He shows me. It's a Canon projector. I didn't know they made anything like that. I mean, I sort of was where they absolutely like they make projectors for a conference room or something like that kind of thing. This thing was huge. It's like a cinema projector. It's what they made. They have like at a multiplex or something, right? So I called back and I said, hey, I got another one for you. <laughs> you know, what do you think you just, can you lend me one of these? And it turns out the projector is like 39 grand. And the lens is almost $9,000 that, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, I promise I'll give it back. I just want to show these guys what it looks like. And we just, they sent it to me. We literally had all our final portfolio reviews for the first time with stuff looking amazing. And a big deal with that as a teacher, you're respecting the student's work, Yeah. right? Like, it's not like you're in a room and you have to turn your laptop around and say, this is what it should really look like. You're respecting their work. And also it's like, 
you're respecting the field that they're about to go into. You know, I just sent up at the music school. They wouldn't have the pianos out of tune for a day. This is like a piano being out of tune. You wouldn't say, like, imagine it sounds like this. Like, you know, it's like what it is. So for me, the teaching thing has been really good. And in terms of breaking down stuff, it's been, yeah. it's like reverse engineering. I start with it and then take it back, 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 back. And then take it like piece by piece again. It's not, even though it is like which dial on the, you know, pro photo do you turn and which thing on the speed light, there's that. But it's like, first you have to recognize light, like see it. Most people don't see it. There's a super famous picture that uh, Bernice Abbott did at Grand Central with the rays of sunlight coming in. It's a beautiful picture. If you see that, it's like, oh, that's the light. And then you see another picture like a Penn Station around the same time. And it's a great picture, but there's no light. And you can see like, okay, what's actually driving the picture? It's the light, right? And you could see somebody in yes. a smoke-filled hut in Tibet with the light rays coming through. And it's like, oh, that's the light, right? And I said, I guarantee you, there could have been another photographer and they were standing in the wrong place. Like, that's the And so first you see the light. And then you start to imagine, oh, if it looks like this from here, what would it look like if I was over there? Like you start to take it one more step. Or you look at it and you say, what would it look like if I came back at 6 o'clock? What would that look like? You know, as opposed to just like, oh, it's noon, I'll take a picture, I guess it's noon. You could do that. And almost the third step then is like seeing something and imagining, what would it look like if I put light through that window that looked like late afternoon sun? What would it look like? If I did this, what would it look like if I did that? Not just for the sake of doing it, but like reimagining a space or reimagining a portrait or reimagining a scene where you could actually control it, right? And people could see a picture. They'll see a picture of somebody standing by a window that looks great, but then a really good photographer. And then they get in the studio and they put on the stupid hat and they start going on YouTube to see what people do. It's like, now if somebody's sitting by a window and the window's like two and a half feet wide and five feet high, that's a two and a half by five foot softbox about two feet away, right? Like that's, that's all that is. It's not any harder or easier than that. Like you don't use a beauty dish because somebody told you to use a beauty dish. It's like, well, why? Like what would be the reason for doing that? And like you have to overthink it. And again, people have done many amazing pictures and had fantastic careers and they sort of lock onto a lighting thing and they do it. And that's cool. That's why yeah. like people do it. It's cool. Sure. But I don't want them to do it just because they saw it. I want them to say, yeah, because I think, uh, especially if they're getting their education via YouTube, it, it's so much built around, Yeah, this modifier will make it look like this. And then people, mm -hmm. you know, buy the modifier, they buy the light, and they they set it up so they can get the same result of the, as the person who is doing it on YouTube. It, it doesn't really discuss the intentionality of the photographer. It's like, yeah, this umbrella Intention. will make it look like this, but... Uh, what did you want the picture to mm -hmm. look like even before you set up the first light? This this gets into what, what it was, yep. was going to be my next question was the difference between style and vision. Because I get a lot of young photographers. Oh, man, you could ask about it. I was style. just going to get to it. Okay. Okay, cool. So, yeah, I, let's I talk swear, about that. I swear to you, I was just going to get to it. I was just going to – I'm going to show you something. Your folks won't see it. But two days ago on uh, Friday – I was at school. It was really just a wrapping up, one of those wrapping up days. And our department chair is a sweetheart is stepping down. Here's the thing. So the guy who's the chair of the department, I don't know. I met him years earlier. The first Eddie Adams workshop, I was one of the team leaders and he was one of the students. Oh, this wow. Guy, oh, right? wow. And now he's like the department chair. How cool is that? Right. How cool is that? So anyways, super sweet guy. He's great. 
but he's stepping down, not leaving, but just stepping down from that. We thought, oh, so I got a call from the person who's coming in to do it. And she said, you know, it'd be really great if we just maybe had a, a group picture of faculty for him, just surprise him with it. Can you, can you just, I know, sure, can you set up something quick? And for me, like, there kind of isn't quick. My first wife, her thing is like, done is better than perfect. And my thing is like, it's perfect or it's garbage. So we had our differences in many ways. But anyway, but I set this thing in the studio, grabbed a couple of students to help me out. And I really had an idea what I wanted to do. Nothing fancy. I didn't want to look like cool light. I just want to look like the thing. And it's like 11 people. It's a group, but big groups are harder, right? And so I, they came and I said, okay, we're going to put this here. We're going to put that there. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We set it up, tethered, and took a picture. And the very first picture was right on the bottom. The very first picture, it was done. Because you, the intention, not like I'm a good photographer, my intention was clear. I'll show you this. It won't matter because I'm doing it on the computer. I don't know if it'll even show up. But literally, this is the first picture that like popped up on the screen. Oh, it's all washed mm. out. You can't see it. Anyway, look, you'll have to just trust me that yeah. it looks cool. It's yeah, a it simple picture, nice. but it looks good. And for them, what they end up seeing is that. It's like, oh, Jesus, like all this crazy shit to make a simple picture, right? And intentionality is everything. And again, for the first class, it's like, and there's a million ways to work. Like a really dear friend of mine is Jay Maisel, right? He's one of the, right. one of the legends of all time as a photographer. And his sort of mantra in a way, which I think is lovely, is I like to go out empty and let the world fill me up. And I argue mm. that that is beautiful. I mean, I, yeah. nothing I can say to that. Like, yeah, that's nice. Right. I'm like ADD. If I go out empty, it's like a bird, a tree, a reflection, pretty hazard. But, you know, I'm just like all over the place. And I come back. And also, like, I'm a terrible person. I don't carry a camera around all the time. I don't. Because if I did, I wouldn't be doing anything else. But also, most of the pictures I would shoot, I come back. I don't want to scan them. I don't want to archive them. I don't want to keyword them. I don't want to print them. I don't want to share them. I sort of don't ever want to see them again. It was just that moment that was great. So I feel like I've, my brain goes, goes click. I see that, and that's fine. It's still, that exercise of seeing it is good. But for the students, and for me, I just, like, if I go out with an intention of, I don't know, photographing red cars, all of a sudden you start seeing all the red cars. And you start noticing the differences between the red cars and which ones have old assholes driving them and which one has mm. a pretty person driving it and which one has gone too fast and whatever. But all of a sudden you're looking at all the red cars. Otherwise you wouldn't even notice them. Just because you're thinking red cars. And like I just did a, for this beginner class, some of the assignments, they're never technical, but they're more learn how to do this kind of thing. For their final assignment, which is a different thing, and it's supposed to kind of incorporate all these things you've been learning about light and about this and about that. And the intention was, uh, what was the assignment? Oh, yeah. Your intention is just malaise. Just have that in your head. And it could be melancholia. It could be depression. It could be anything you want to be. If you just go out with that in your head, it could literally be a cloudy sky or a face or a leaf or a book that's half open or whatever. But now all of a sudden you have like a thing and it's better if the thing isn't a red car. It's better if it's not an object because photography is always about photographing stuff. That's what pictures are about. But it kind of gets them to switch gears and now they're kind of the driving force isn't, you know, I could take a picture of a guy standing on the left-hand side of a wet, dead whale's head at noon. I'm like, oh, I, I could do that. That's like stuff, you know. But if I have to photograph depression and not have it be a trope, not have it be like a thing of like somebody sitting in a corner of a room crying in a fetal position, it's like, well, you know, you've all been depressed. Like, what, 
What's that look like for you? What does that feel? What does it feel? Not what does it look like, what does it feel like? Take a picture of what it feels like. And so that, the intentionality, really makes a big difference for stuff like that, even for people who are new at it. And my feeling is, in a sense, that first class, even if they never take another class in photography, their iPhone pictures are going to be a whole lot better because they're going to go out and they're going to be looking at the light a little more and they're going to be thinking about having an intention. It'll all be different. I think it'll raise their bar. What you were just asking about to me is a huge thing. I think, I think what people think of as style is technique. Like, and if you're, cause it'll make your pictures cohere, they'll, it'll make them kind of hang together. And that kind of thing. I, I start telling there's three levels. This is just my thing. There's vision, technique, and style. Vision is like your photo DNA. It's how your wife, your mom dropped you on your head when you were little or whatever. Like it's, it's your photo. It's how you see. And that's how you organize space, all kinds of stuff like that. That's actually most easily seen in photojournal, documentary photographers for the most part, because there's no technical overlay. What you're seeing, like Salgado doesn't use lighting, like you, his picture, you yeah. pretty much tell was his picture, is like that, right? Or Robert Frank or Cartier Bresson and a bunch of other people, right? Because, and it's like, yeah, that's prob- probably what it is, right? So there's nothing fancy going on. And it's not because he uses a 35 prime. It's like, not how, how the person's wired. And a, a part of it would be using that, but that's not what it's about. So there's a, the vision is like your photo DNA. It's, it, you can't help but do a picture that way, in a way. The second piece is technique, and that's like, am I using a 35 or a 50? Am I using uh, continuous light to strobes? Am I using a beauty dish or a softbox? I'm gonna do, like, all those things are technical. That's technique, using technical things to, to achieve what you're doing. Style, to me, is vision as expressed through technique. And then you end up with style. Because mm-hmm. style is not the technique. It's how your vision uses the technique to get where it wants to go. If that is truly style, then it is unique. It is. And it's like they're photographers. We both know who are terrific photographers, but they'll do a thing and it might be the cool thing. It could be on the cover of every magazine for three or four years and it's great. But then somebody in Milwaukee really starts doing the same thing because they kind of got the idea of what it was. And you say, oh, that, that actually does look the same. Like if it's, if it's a style that's really technique, it's like a recipe. Because like cookbook, like you and I could cook it up. Well, it might not be. It will pretty much get the same thing. That's the whole point of a cookbook. And I think that technique is that. Like if somebody's using a technique in place of style, intentionally or not, you and I could probably figure out what it was and kind of, kind of, kind of come up with the same picture. And the ways right. that yours and mine will be different are where our vision creeps in, right? But to me, that's the thing. And I don't think you can try to have a style. You can try to apply techniques for sure. You can't try to have, style is something you would see in hindsight. Like you look at a bunch of pictures, it's like, no shit. <laughs> I guess that's how I, that's my style, I guess. Do you know what I mean? What you'll see is photographers, again, really good photographers, they'll have a big run in a magazine or something where you just see their stuff all over and they sort of get antsy and they want to do something else. Once they're pulled off of that thing, their work is no longer distinctive and you tend not to see their work around much. Because once they're pulled off of that, it's not the same. That's how you know it's technique-based. And it could be big close-ups of people. It could be painted backdrops. It could be whatever it is. Once they're off of that, it kind of could almost be anybody. Like, you don't really know, right? And that's when you realize what you've been looking at is that. And in in a sense, 
I heard somebody say this was really cute. I can't take credit for it. That st- style, the way you define style is self plagiarism, which I think is awesome. Mm. Like you just, isn't that cool? You just sort of do what you do again and again. <laughs> it's kind of neat. Those a photographer, I remember looking at his, his or her work. It's been a while ago and I was looking at it and I was going, God, this looks like a lot like Mary Ellen's work. And then did a more research sure. and he had been an assistant for her at some point. So he sure. did sort of adopted that. And I was just like, you know, that's not a good thing that I look at his work and I immediately think of the photographer, you know, Mary Ellen. No, I mean, I, you know, I was guilty of that for sure. Like my big desire in life was to take an Arnold Newman picture. Not that I could ever copy him. It's like I was ruined by him. Like I was tainted. Do you know what I mean? And I felt like I had to see if I could do it. Again, not that my picture would ever be his. I just wanted like, do I get this or do I not get it? Can I can, can right. I understand this, right? And then, and I think I still can't shake him. I mean, he shows up in my pictures. I appreciate that. And my goal is to sort of like, as it relates to him, is carry the torch and hopefully up the ante somewhat. You know, that'd be cool. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think that's understandable. And there's tons of people who do that with lots of photographers who they didn't assist. But then there's also the part of it where we're all influenced by each other. I mean, people, I was one of Mary Ellen's best friends. I love her to pieces and I have endless respect for her and her work. Endless, really. There are some bodies of kinds of pictures she has done where people would compare her with Diane Arbus, and boy, that would give her the shits big time. I don't think she would ever in a million years have sought out to mimic Diane Arbus. It's just not in her wiring at all, but right. we're influenced by it. And to some extent, you'll say like, oh, that, wow, that picture really resonates with me. Well, there you go. You know, it does. That's what it is. I show, actually, I think I show my students. It's really awesome. I don't think I have it here. I would show it to you. It's awesome. It's an issue of life that has a picture of Meryl Streep on the cover. It's from the 80s. And I ask the students who did it, and they'll say Annie Leibovitz or this one or that one because of that time, right? They might say Herb Ritz or they might say whoever of that time. It's Mary Ellen, a studio picture. Not in a million years would you think it was hers. And she's not trying to copy wow. anybody. That's just like her doing that kind of picture. Like she shot tons of stuff on movie sets. It's part of what she does, right? It's part of her skill sets, part of the whole thing. Never in a million years. And then in that same issue is this famous essay of hers that she did on the Dam family. It's a homeless family. And the opening right. shot of mm-hmm. that fam- picture is them sitting in a car. We all know that picture. Correct. That's the same photographer. She doesn't have a style. She's a photographer. Like there, you see that more in cinematography. Like that guy, um, Chibo, Chivo, Ernest Lebesky. He, uh, he does, uh, what's his name's films in a retour, I think. But anyway, he won three Oscars in a row. The first one was for, um, Gravity, that Sandra Bullock, basically a green screen kind of film. It's outer space yeah. kind of thing. He won an Oscar for that. The next one he won was for Birdman, like t- totally mm-hmm. a different thing, a Michael Keaton thing, right? Totally. And the third one he won an Oscar for, three in a row, no one's ever done that, was for The Revenant, where Leo DiCaprio right. was rolling around in the snow with a bear. Remember that thing? It's like, oh, yeah. From, green, from like green screen to, in The Revenant, they use no lighting. They shot everything right. in a short window of time, and the only lights you see are actual kerosene lamps or, or fires. That's why it's that time of day. That's it. So here's a guy who goes the full range to do whatever's best for the story. And people think of storytelling as photojournalism in a sense. And everybody said, that's the big word now. Oh, we're storytellers. I'm a storyteller. 
we're all storytellers. And to some extent that is true. Obviously it's true for that. I push back on that because it's not always that. Like if you want a pair of shoes to look great, you're not a storyteller. You could say, well, I'm telling the story. The shoe's like, not really. You're taking a really amazing picture of some shoes. Nothing wrong with that. It's fine. Like that's totally a cool thing to do. Right? I mean, that's okay. But in that way, I don't know that I would say, and I think most cinematographers like a Roger Deakins, they would never think of themselves as what's my style. They would, you know, if you pushed them, they might admit that they're an artist, maybe. But their thing is really being in service to the story, in service to the idea, right? Like that's that they're using mm-hmm. all their smarts and all their knowledge to say, how can I best convey this? And I, to me, that's just such a huge thing, you know, and it's what you're saying is true. Like every student, especially grads, but every student leaves school and they're like, what's my style? What's my style going to be? Well, I got to have a style. And it's like, unless it's a technique that everybody gets right away, like, you might not know for five years. Just keep taking pictures. Yeah. Like you don't know. And some people won't do the good pictures while I have them in school. They might, it might be two years out or five years out. That's fine. You know, keep at it. Yeah. Fine. I think that, I think a critical component of people who are able to sort of make the leap to vision is that mm-hmm. there's, there's a moment where you have to trust your vision and it can be difficult mm-hmm. if you're not seeing that, seeing something like it elsewhere, whether it's in magazines or in a museum or in a a book, then there's this moment where you think, well, is this any good? Is this worth anything? Because I'm not seeing it anywhere. And you've just gotten a bite of it. And you have to, Mm -hmm. if you have to embrace it, that that though I'm not seeing it, this is the way that I see and fully embrace it. And I think for, especially when people are coming up where they're so fearful about not being successful or not getting things right, that they fall back on technique and 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 emulate it's understandable. what they've seen they successful. So how did you, how did you sort of bridge that and really trust your own vision and not try to just continue to emulate Arnold and the other photographers you you assisted for? Well, I don't know if I've even done that yet. Honestly, I don't. I don't know. I mean, a reason I came up here to teach one of the reasons was to get on an academic calendar, like a September to May kind of thing, and to maybe get into a rhythm of, I have three months where I could make images, and then I have the hibernating months, especially here in Syracuse, where I could do the post-production, darkroom or printing, or whatever I wanted to do, and to try and like embrace doing projects like that, as opposed to bouncing around doing stuff that I was doing all the time, which I loved, but, the, but I just felt like, not in, a, not in a jaded way, like been there, done that, but just, if I got hit by a bus, I wouldn't have been sad that I didn't do another magazine cover or an ad. I had a lot of ideas in my head and I just, I'd be a little sad that I never got to that. And they might suck and they might be great. I don't know. I feel like if and when I do those, those will at least be authentic in a different kind, interesting to me in a different kind of way. I don't, I don't really know yet. Like a person who I think you might want to talk to, I think is really cool. He's a good friend of mine and I admire him tremendously. He's not even shooting anymore. He plays jazz guitar in clubs. That's what he does now, literally. Mm. He's a still life person who literally kind of invented a whole way of doing still life that now everybody does. So he did it in the 80s, and he sort of invented a whole way of shooting still life for Martha Stewart. That whole kind of like open, airy, bokeh, 
organic looking, feels like natural light, but it's not, but it does feel like it. Like still light before that was like a big bank of softbox, black glass from Micah or something like that. F-16 popping the strobe bunch. Like that was kind of what still life was largely about for, for a long time. And I remember I have it here. The first time I saw his pictures, I didn't know him yet, was he took out two pages of spread in the creative black book, which was like the Bible at the time. Right. right. And what it was, was, uh, or maybe just one page. I remember, but the picture I remember was, it was really a shot of a Heineken bottle sitting on a kind of a dirty windowsill and you don't even see the whole bottle and you're not seeing the label. And there's just like, you see the stems of flowers, just the stems in kind of cloudy water. It sounds ridiculous, but it was kind of really cool. And that's why it really was. I remember seeing that and thinking, wow, that's pretty ballsy for sure. You know, it doesn't look like anything else in here. And he said that he did that. And for however many years, he literally got like no work. Like he showed his portfolio a hundred times, mm. nothing, you know, and then he showed it at the Times magazine, I think it was, and they called him to do a thing, and he did it. It ran, and from the next Monday on, his phone didn't stop ringing for five years. It's like, it takes one thing. Anybody yeah. else would have said, well, maybe I should try the softbox thing again. He just knew he had to do He's a really unusual guy. Like, he, he is an artist. You might pinch him in the middle of the night, you get an artist. I mean, he just, he's not, he's not, he doesn't look like his pictures. He just is this guy and his work is really very beautiful and he has a different way of working. It's so interesting. I mean, he's like, we've talked about it and he says, you know, Greg, you, you shoot to perfection. I shoot for imperfection. I didn't get what he was getting and I don't think my pictures are perfect. But if you think about it and from his, we both were assistants, not together, but he said, you know, I'd be about himself. I'd be working in still life studio seven in the morning. We knock out the first Polaroid, big camera. And he said, after a while, I would save it, right? And all day, we'd move the thing like an inch this way, an inch that way, move the light, add a little water to it, whatever. And he said, inevitably, like by 10 o'clock that night, sometimes it was the same as the thing we got in the morning. Sometimes it was better, but it was like these little incremental climbing the steps to perfection, whatever that was, right? Mm -hmm. And on that level, I think it's true. Like I tend to like figure it out and then try to make it better. And he said, he just hated that. Not me, but he hated that process. It made him crazy and it made him depressed. He felt like he was getting smacked in the face all day long. Like you look at a Polaroid and you're like, well, that's not right. Well, that's not right. What's wrong with that? Oh, that's not right. Like all day long. So what he does is, or what he was doing then, he had his 8x10 Deardorff on wheels and he would never shoot two pictures the same. And he would shoot film. He'd be shooting film. And he was saying like, for example, if it's a booze shot or something, you have the bottle, You've got the glass with the rocks in it. They're sitting there. That's the first frame. As in, the second frame is the caps off the bottle. The third frame, there's some booze in the glass. He said, 100 sheets later, like the bottle's busted. There's booze on the floor, like whatever it is. Like it's, he's gone through this whole arc mm. without judging it. He's like, oh, maybe that could be cool. Oh, maybe that could be, that looks good. Yeah, let's try that. And then a day later when he's got all the crumbs, he's going through them and he finds the spot in the arc that worked the best. But he said, I don't deprive myself of all the mistakes. I don't even see them as mistakes. And I thought, that's awesome. You know what I mean? I mean, really such an interesting way to yeah. work. And I am always questioning every step of the way in a sense, what's wrong with that? It could be better. You know, and obviously I have this, you can't see I have a thing in the middle of my forehead here. It's from being on airplanes and going, shit, you know, for like 40 <laughs> years. And thinking, 
no, thinking of the picture I should have made, but I'm on the plane now, you know, that kind of thing. But to me, that was great. The Day of the Dead event in Mexico is one of the country's most colorful and exciting cultural events. There are parades, parties, performances, and graveyard celebrations all over the place. It's a perfect opportunity for a photographer and a workshop. And photographer Chris Suspect will be your host for this experience. He'll provide you with a way to have a complete photographic and personal experience while you're there. You'll enjoy a personal portfolio review, lectures by native Mexican photographers, and meals at some of Oaxaca's best restaurants. This workshop is scheduled for October 28th through November 4th, and limited slots are available. Sign up soon by visiting chrissuspect.com forward slash Day of the Dead. You know, you talked about Jay, and Jay's really big on sort of gesture. And yeah, but but for me, when I'm looking at a portrait, especially now since I've been just immersing myself in a different photographers I'm considering for the show, one of the things that I'm looking for is not so much technique or lighting or concept, but I'm looking for sort of a a genuine moment with the subject, mm -hmm. and I really can't put my finger on what it is. But when I look at the photograph, I recognize it. And mm -hmm. and and I'm really curious to hear from you about the moment where it, it's like like you were just describing with with the still life with the bottle. There's the slightest variation in terms of body language, expression, you know, the eye line, all of those things that create that that moment and you know largely you're you're not shooting with 35 millimeter and shooting 200 frames you're working with a medium former and a large format and being able to recognize that moment i think is it's a skill and a talent sort of at the same time but yeah i i would love to hear you to talk about you know considering the way that you work being able to recognize it as it's happening and expose the film of the plate yeah i mean like it, that's a huge thing. It's a great question. And it would be the question I get the most from students when we start doing any kind of portrait stuff. And they say, how do you get people to pose? How do you get them to pose? What do you do? How do you get them to pose? For sure, the thing I always say is, I don't, because if you get people to pose, what you end up with are poses. <laughs> so in place of a gesture, that's just like what you got somebody to do. And they're really mm -hmm. good books. And I'm not being sarcastic. They're really good books on posing. Lindsay Adler is a really good book on posing. It, that's great. Like for for them, if they want to learn how to, that, that's useful for sure. But it's not an authentic thing. It's like you're getting. It's like arranging flowers. Right? You're just you're getting them into an arrangement that's pleasing to you, and that's that's fine. That's cool. The gesture thing in a lot of my pictures, some have it and some don't. And a challenge for the, a lot of the stuff I do and had done, which is again something I'm trying to get away from. Actually, I would have people for minutes, five minutes, ten minutes. If I had them for half an hour, it's because it was five minutes, then they go make phone calls, then they come back. There's another 10 minutes, then they go call their agent, they come back. And it's not like, it's not like we get to a big shoot where we get to do that. Like, I have to come in kind of front-loaded, and my, my pictures have to be set up in a way, and this is terrible, but it's just what it is, that are almost subject-proof, right? Like, if the person comes in grumpy or hungover or didn't get laid or just got a speeding ticket, I still have to get the picture. It doesn't matter, right? 
So the picture has to be okay, independent of something, independent of the person in a certain kind of way. It has to care. It has to be successful visually and kind of getting whatever idea across I'm trying to get across. That's that. If I can get something from the person or connect with them in a way that's obviously always better, always better. It just doesn't always happen. And sometimes I can create the illusion that it did happen, but I'm never this person's buddy. Like I have no friends. I've already got friends. I don't need more friends. I don't need, need that. That's not what I'm looking for, but it's really important. And a lot of what happens with that is honestly, it's all the stuff that's the good stuff to me is like so cornball, but it's true. It's like yoga stuff. It's like everything is just be present in the moment. If you can be present and be really looking at what your person's doing and be really sensitive to that, then those things will show up in your pictures more. If you're locked inside your head, and early on in my career, God, like I was all worried about the pictures being lit bright and stuff. And I'd show it to my wife. I'd say, what do you think? Isn't that great? And she'd say, well, she was British. So, I don't know. It looks a bit stiff to me, really, a bit stiff. i like, well, come on. The thing's like, it looks great. I know, Greg, I know. It is lovely, but it is a bit stiff. You'd have to admit it is a bit stiff. You know, it's like that kind of thing where it's like the operation was a success, but the patient died, like for sure. And like I just took a picture yesterday. There was nothing. I was out having dinner with some friends, and I never do this. But this one guy, uh, it sounds terrible. He had just, yeah, well, anyway, he had come from a funeral and then he'd been, he's a member of a chorale and he was singing in that and he actually was wearing the same black suit for both. But I've never seen him in a suit and the guy looked great. He, he looked like he could have been a member of the Rat Pack or something like that. And I thought, geez, I got to take a picture really quick. And I literally, with my phone, just snapped a couple of pictures in a minute. But the thing that was cool is like, it's really cool as a picture of him for sure. And what's mm-hmm. great about it is, it has life. I wouldn't say all my pictures have that quality of life to them. This, these do for sure. And I would maybe prize that a little bit more than I would have earlier. My fantasy is that the photograph would have all of it. And it's a little bit like, for those older members of your audience, there used to be a guy who'd be like on the you know, Tonight Show or Ed Sullivan Show, and he had these plates spinning on the ends of sticks. Yes. They have to run back mm-hmm. and forth to keep them all spinning. It's like that. Right, like you want the line to be okay, but then you want the gesture to be okay, but then you want to make sure your technical stuff is good, but then the good guy's interest is fading, so you have to go back to that. It's like all that stuff. And keeping those all spinning at the same time, I honestly think it's a matter of experience more than anything else. I don't think it comes easily. And I do think that that saying where every portrait's a self-portrait, to some extent, is true. And I remember seeing a thing where Avedon was showing the picture of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, and he says, like, you can't make a photograph of someone that doesn't come out of their own experience in a way, an authentic photograph. You can get somebody to do something, but in a way, there was a photographer, I can't remember his name. I'm not trying to be, you know, nice about it. I just can't remember his name, but he was really big 20 years ago, did portraits. And all this, it was the beginning, you know, there's like a whole era where portraits were just sort of awkward. That was the whole thing in a way, right, yeah. unpaused and awkward. And he was this little English guy and his stuff, like he'd say, oh, you know, it's bloody, I don't know, sort of a bloody sort of thing. And you go, what? You couldn't hear anything he was saying. And all his subjects were kind of going like, huh? 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 It's sort of <laughs> actually what his pictures were like in a way. That's what he would do. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's him. That was kind of him in a way. He couldn't try to be Irving Penn or try to be Avenon. Actually, you know who you should talk to about this? I actually showed his work to my students. I was putting some books away upstairs, a lot of photo books. And one guy whose work I really like, 
who was a really big deal, like in the 80s, huge, was in L.A., a guy named Norman Seif, S-E-E-F-F. I know of Norman, yeah. He did a shit ton of record covers and all kinds of stuff. And what's so interesting about his work, it's not fancy lighting. He mostly had like an umbrella. He didn't have a big studio. His thing he was sort of well-known for is it was way before like the BTS thing. He had like film crews filming him doing all these shoots. It was like a party. And I'm sure there was drugs and knows what else. But it was like, it was a thing. His photographs have so much energy and so much life. And it's not about him saying, do this, now do this, now do this. It's about his interaction with them. And I wouldn't even say that when you watch him, you go like, oh, wow, that's great. It's like, it seems sort of like a little awkward or I don't know if I'd ask that question. It's kind of funny. But the fact is he totally is drawing something out of people that's wonderful and really wonderful. He'd be a cool guy to talk to and look at his pictures because his stuff is, I think a lot of contemporary people wouldn't necessarily be so super aware of him, but he's great. You know, and I saw saw him giving a talk. I showed it. I looked him up and saw a, uh, he did like a TED talk somewhere, like a TED talk in Madrid or someplace. But anyway, it was somewhere else. And it was quick the thing and but it was so clear what he was after you know and i think in terms of gesture in that way it really comes through like gesture for me and i think for jay it's not necessarily gesture like gesturing the gesture i would say would be the thing that gives picture life in a way like it could be in jay's case like telephone wires going off into the sunset that's like a gesture or the curve of a leaf or the brim of somebody's hat or who knows what but this is the thing that, like, if that kind of weren't happening, the picture would sort of be a little dead. And that's the thing that kind of animates the picture, whether or not it's of a person, it kind of does that. At least for me, I don't know if that's what he means yeah. by it, but that's, that's how I would take it. You know, you, you photograph politicians, actors, um, athletes, all of whom are very conscious of their image and how they look in front of a camera. So how do you elicit, you know, that genuine moment? from someone who is ever conscious of how they look like. Sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. And Avedon had said his pictures don't, don't go beneath the surface. He loves surfaces. He could play all day on a surface. He's like, to some extent, people are presenting you with something that they've worked really hard at. Do you know what I mean? It's like people say, I want to I see if I can get outside the box. It's like, I worked my whole life upholstering this box. I got it furnished really nice. Like, I got it just how I like it now. I don't, I don't want to yeah. go outside the box. It's good. And to some extent with, with people, though, I think they've worked very hard to, to decide who they are and kind of cultivate that and decide what they're presenting. And to some extent, that has value for sure, for sure. And I saw a thing recently. Who was it with? Um, oh, it was his thing. It was Norman's thing. And it's him doing this portrait session with Alicia Keys, right? Mm-hmm. And like Stevie Wonder could take a good picture of Alicia Keys. I mean, that's not too hard. You know, that, that wouldn't be too tough. So he's doing these pictures and she's one, it's a video that you're seeing of her talking and she's just, it's completely wonderful. You know, it's great. And she tells him a story and he's asking her something and she goes like this and she says, you know, I, I don't remember it. And he says, you don't remember that really? He goes, well, you know, I like you. I, I, I'm starting to remember. I like you. That makes Norman feel like he's the coolest guy on earth. Mm. I would bet a lot of money that that's not the first time she said that. She knows how to play <laughs> for sure. Oh yeah. Alicia Keys, Alicia Keys tells me I'm special. I am putty in her hands, man, for sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean in a way? And that's not being critical to her or no. Yeah. It's just, it's like a dance in a way. 
And the thing that's especially difficult, I find, with photographing, particularly celebrities, but any of the kind of people you're talking about, whether it's an NBA guy, a movie star, or politician, I am in those kind of how I am. Like I try to be funny and nice and friendly and all that stuff. The pictures I get don't necessarily look like that. I'm just kind of trying to get the person to trust me a little bit and be okay. Really, yeah. that's, that's kind of it. And I always wear my tie. I'm not wearing them now. I always wear like the bow tie and the jacket. Always. It, whether I'm in the locker room or where, I always dressed up, always. Like my mama raised me right. You know, I go to the White House. It's like unless you're in, you are in the NBA, like you don't go in like warm-ups. It's like the White House, man. You know, like Jesus. You know, it's like that kind of thing. So I'm always, I always dress up no matter what. Uh, some people might think I look like a clown, but it definitely like, to me it's saying like, I'm taking you really seriously. I'm respecting you a lot. And I want this to be a, a certain kind. And people appreciate that for sure. It's like the 8x10 camera in a way. It's not like I'm special, but it's like, A, they think I am. And B, you see that wooden camera in front of you, shut up and sit straight. You, you do. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, okay, this is like something, you know. But I feel like what you see for those kinds of people, whether it's a politician or a sports person or actor or singer or someone like that, they do this every day. And right. a thing that got a little disheartening, not terrible, but when Annie appeared on the scene, Leibowitz, for those of you who might not know who I'm talking about, there's only one like Cher. But Annie, when she appeared on the scene, before her, people did all kinds of different portraits for sure. Once she arrived and people started really take stock, all of a sudden, the request from picture editors and art directors was like, see if you can get them to do something. Like that was never a priority, get them to do something. You're doing a portrait. It's not about them getting to do something. If you get them to do something, it's about what you got them to do. It's about you, mm-hmm. not so much about them. And that did an interesting, but that was definitely a big thing for sure. And it changed everything. I don't know necessarily for the better, but it definitely changed it to like from a portrait to a certain kind of perform a performance of the person being photographed, a performance by the photographer. And I just, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it. Again, not being so much critical of what she's doing or her work or any of that. It's just a different thing. Yeah. But now as a result of that, I find that you can come in and say, I have this terrific idea. And basically, I'm Monday's terrific idea. Yesterday was Sunday's terrific idea. Tomorrow, she's going to have to hear from some guy who's like Tuesday's terrific idea. Or I was the noon grade idea and the 3.30. She's got the 3.30 idea. And then somebody's coming in at 4. You know, it's like they do interviews and everybody says, tell me about the time that you first knew you were a singer. And it's like they all say, you know, that's a good question. Like they're at the Grammys being interviewed backstage or at Cannes or something, and they have to say the same fucking thing to like Bunta and Stern and the New York Times and Time and Le Figaro and the London Sunday. T- you know, they, there's only so much new stuff you can have, right? Right. So you answer it. You can either say, you can be an asshole and say, well, just read all the other stuff. You don't have to ask me where I was born or what my first blah, blah, blah. But people do it because it, it is different, hopefully, every time it's been told. And maybe it's different for you. But they do it a lot, a lot. And I think way more than it used to be now. So this notion of like trying to get underneath it, you might. You might. Yeah. I don't know that that's even necessarily what I want. And in many cases, I don't know if that's who's there even in a certain kind of way. You know what I mean? Like it's, right. I don't know. I, I certainly appreciate the notion of it. What I would like to get is something authentic for sure. I don't know that I can get behind the mask in a certain kind of way. Authentic is good. If I can get that, that's, that's pretty good. You know, like my, this guy I took a picture of yesterday. Like it's, it's yeah. definitely an authentic picture. There's tons of pictures that aren't 
authentic. Like I think a lot of Arnold's pictures aren't authentic. That wasn't the point. That was kind of wasn't what it was about, you know? Yeah. And so that's fine. Yeah. Um, that make any sense? I don't know. You know? No, that does perfect, perfect sense. You said in the past that as a photographer and as a businessman, you made a lot of mistakes. But what is one mistake that you <laughs> that you wouldn't that you wouldn't go back and change because you gained so much from it? Uh, I change them all. I think. I mean, the only thing I wouldn't change is who I am because like, that's that's who you are for better or worse. Mm. In a way, I, like in a way, one thing I would offer that I never got the memo on this. I was just super naive. Is I never understood that the business is built on relationships, that the world is built on relationships. Mm. I actually thought it was completely a meritocracy. Like if they like your pictures, they'll hire you. That's what I thought. And I had an agent for years who was a completely great guy. Howard Bernstein was terrific. And he said, like, it's not a meritocracy. He says not. You know, like they don't get the commission to build the, F the new highway because their cement's better. It's like they get it because they get tickets to, on the 50-yard line at the game or the bid's lower or whatever. You know, they don't have better concrete, whatever it is. And he said, in our, in our profession, it's actually fortunate that, that it does matter what your work looks like. Like, that actually does matter for sure. But so much of it is built on relationships. That's why agents are important in a way. And I thought about that. That hit me like a ton of bricks, honestly, because I never cultivated that. Like, I never, I never became friends with anybody I ever worked with, whether it was a client or a subject or anything. Like, I would become friends with people I work for, like an art director or something, once I no longer work for them. Because I wouldn't hire somebody because they asked me how my kids were or because they bought me tickets to a football game. Like, I wouldn't hire them because of that. No, I, I wouldn't hire the person for the job. At the same time, though, a lot of it comes down to, it could be somebody in an ad agency saying they need to do a portrait and they lean over their cubicle to the guy in the next cubicle and say, I got this portrait thing to do. You know a good portrait guy? And the guy says, yeah, I just work with this guy. He's great. Schmeisler, Beisler, he's good with people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just work with him. Really? Uh, I'm not kidding. Mm -hmm. And here you do your portfolio and it's like tied with Rafia and you want to just so... And in the end, it could be Heisler, Beisler, Schmeisler. It's like the person he knows recommended it. And I thought about that. And on the one hand, it's like, that is horrible. But on the other hand, and again, this is just me. I thought if I'm hiring a makeup, if I choose Julia Roberts tomorrow, I have to hire a makeup artist. I could look at a thousand makeup artist portfolios. And A, being a photographer, all I would do is be critical of all the photographs. Oh, lighting in this. Oh, I can't believe it. Oh, you shot that? Oh, and they hire me. I, I'd be looking at that. I wouldn't know what was the good makeup. I'd look with the light or something else. If I just shoot Julia Roberts tomorrow, I would call somebody I know who does that kind of work. I say, I gotta shoot Julia Roberts. You work with somebody lately who'd be good for that? And they'd say, Yeah. You know, Fred and Sharice, they're amazing. They do he does hair, she does the makeup. I'm done. I don't I wouldn't even call them the portfolio. It's like, what am I gonna see? I say, yeah. you sure are they good with the people part of it? They loved them. Amazing. Like really it's so fun to have on set, they just set the tone. That's great. Because I could look at a portfolio and find somebody that to me maybe is great. But on set, they're toxic. Like they take too long or it's all about them or who knows? It could be a thousand things that could go wrong. So it's built on relationships. I really never understood that. And I feel given I never understood that, I was lucky and it worked out fine. And once yeah. people work with me, they like me. I'm a nice person. I'm not a horrible person. I would say that's really a huge thing. Do you know what I mean? I really Absolutely. I do think it is and I never got that. Yeah, people want to, especially for repeat work. I mean, if people remember that they had a good time with you, Jeez, yeah. if you deliver the job and you and it was fun to be with you, that's great. 
you know, and if the other photographer totally. produced better work, yeah. but was an asshole, I never want to be with him again. For the most part, that's true. I, f I feel like, yeah, like it's hard enough to get a job. It's really hard to get a client. A client's like somebody who mm -hmm. trusts you. And what's great about that, once you do the second thing, you're good because now they trust you. You know how to interact with that. It's all good. Like so much stuff's now out of the way. You can really get to the matter at hand. It's wonderful. That's a, a really great thing. At the same time, there are people who work with really toxic kind of photographers for sure, even though they know that ahead of time even because they want to have the war story. Oh, my God. <laughs> the thing went over a bunch of the nightmare. I asked, you hear them all the time. But they wanted mm -hmm. the experience. Do you know what I mean? They wanted to do it. And now wow. they can say they did. They're so really, you'd be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not that much of a masochist. No. And, and there's a photographer I know just on the gesture thing. I was thinking about this. He's a wonderful portrait photographer and has done many, many good pictures. They don't have a lot of heart, I would say, but they're really beautifully done for sure. And his thing is, he said, I never talk to the subject. Never. He said, it's their job to fill that space, not mine. And I was just like, you go, dude. Like, mm. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine what that would be like. But supposedly, you know, there's that guy, um, Disfarmer, Michael Disfarmer was yes. a photographer from mm -hmm. like whatever it was, the 40s or something like that, right? And all the people are just like standing in, in his studio. He was in like uh, Arkansas somewhere. I can't remember. Heber Springs, Arkansas. He was like the town photographer. And apparently he had the little studio part where the people would be. He'd literally, from what I understand, go into another room, like when you get your x-rays done. Mm -hmm, yeah. Like that always makes you feel good, right? You're getting an x-ray and they go out of the room. It's like, oh, this is not good. <laughs> they give you like a little lead vest, but they like, they're nowhere near it. It's like, this is not good. But apparently he, he would literally go in another room and like take a picture through like a little hole or window or something. So they're just standing there. He's not asking them about their motivations. He's not telling them jokes. No. And the people look really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool, though. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I and I yes, think like absolutely. I wouldn't do it. It's like yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing. Yeah. But my last question for you is one that I ask each guest. I ask them to recommend one photographer for our listeners to discover on their own, and it can be anyone—someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So, who would that one photographer be, and why? Oh, there's tons of people. I would say uh, first of all, I would look. I would think you should have Norman Seif on the show. I think he'd be really, he's a very thoughtful person. I never met him. I don't know him. But in terms of just the gesture and that kind of like, not so much the visual, but the connection. Mm -hmm. And I normally, I'll just have to say, I normally don't give a shit about that. Like that, that is one of many kind of pitfalls that a lot of photographers fall into is that they're not actually looking at the picture. They have this great experience. And again, I talk to my students about it, like, I'm so happy if it changed your life. I don't care. All I'm looking at is the picture. If it's in the picture, great. If not, I don't care. Like I've yeah. had pictures that were the worst day ever, but it's in the picture. The picture's there. You know what I mean? So they, they, they can't separate that out when they're putting a portfolio together because they're looking at all these things that were very meaningful for them, but it ain't in the pictures. I don't care about it if it's not in the picture. You know what I mean? It's that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and it goes the other way around too, for sure. He'd be an I think he'd be an interesting guy to hear from. He'd be good. Yeah. This guy, Grant, is very thoughtful. Grant Peterson. I don't even know if he has a website to look at because he's kind of not in the business. He was in the business for like 30 years and amazing. Really amazing. Very unusual guy. Terrific. Very, talk about thoughtful and intentional. Fantastic. And good sense of humor and stuff. He's great. Yeah. Grant Peterson. Norman Seif would be one. I'm sure you've had Dan on the show. I mean, Dan's just like super articulate. His yeah. work is terrific. He's great. He's great. 
He's great. Um, I think what, what you need to have on the show are just people who are honest, <laughs> who tell you what it is. Oh, yeah. I mean? like, that's, like, I'm not on the show because it'll drive me people to your website. So, like, I just think just have people you think will just have a good chat with you, and it'll be fun. Yeah. And this is what this Who is do you been. love? I like a people. Who would you love to shoot? Who would you love to to interview who you haven't interviewed yet? Interview? Um, Mark Seliger is one person who's been on my radar for a long time. really like his work. Yeah, um, she got him. Knockway, you know, sitting down with Knockway. He's great. Very thoughtful. He's really good. Yep. W- Willie Magelston, when before he had a pint or two. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know, people yep. who I grew up with, you know, who are still around. How about dead folks? Um, Oh, Jesus. How about dead folks? Yeah, Gordon Parks, Roy DeCarava, yeah. W. Eugene Smith. Did you ever meet him? I met Gordon Parks. I, I, I uh, visited him at his apartment for an hour oh, when did I was you? in That's, college. Uh, that was awesome. Oh, I was so I nervous. I met him a couple of times, and he's – yeah, no kidding. I was so nervous, I didn't ask to make his picture. That's yeah. That it was. I, no. was just like, I walked out of there, and I went, oh, my God. But yeah. No, but he's just again. so great, wasn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He oh was genuine. God. He was amazing. You can always do it with your financial support. And if you enjoy the work that we're doing here, we would really much appreciate it. Each episode requires time, effort, and resources, and your donations helps to make all of that possible. You can contribute $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash thecandidframe. And if you have been thinking about this for a while but have never gotten around to do it, why not take the time to do it today? It would be a great help. Thank you so much for your continued support. Thanks to Gregory for joining us. Find out more about him and his work by visiting gregoryheisler.com. And if you're a fan of our work, you have different ways to support us. You can write a review on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and share a favorite episode on your social networks, be it Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And you can also support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. Thanks to James Gates for his generous contribution. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, download the Candor Frame app. Available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candor Frame.